This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Concussions can have serious and long-term health effects. Over 3 million concussions related to sports occur annually in the United States, and it's thought that up to half of these go unreported. It's estimated that one in five high school athletes who play contact sports will suffer a concussion each year. These statistics have resulted in the Center for Disease Control concluding that sports concussions have reached an epidemic level. In most athletes, signs and symptoms of a concussion are typically present immediately following the injury. However, in some, they might not be recognized until days or even weeks later. With us today to discuss sports-related concussions is Dr. Kara Prido, a sports medicine specialist in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Kara, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, let's start by having you define a sports-related concussion. So a concussion is a mild form of traumatic brain injury. A concussion is resultive of a blow to the head or a blow to the body that then transmit the forces to the head, rotational forces or acceleration deceleration forces that get transmitted to the head. So this causes damage to the neurons and their axons and a complex pathophysiologic process that causes transient uh, symptoms that we associate with concussion, including physical, cognitive, and emotional behavioral symptoms. Is loss of consciousness a requirement of a concussion? Loss of consciousness is not a requirement to, to diagnose a concussion. Um, it's uh, something that can occur, whether it be brief or more prolonged, but it's not um, a requirement to, for a concussion. Okay. Are there certain sports that have greater risks for concussions? There are. So it's important to recognize that any sport or even non-sport activity could put someone at risk for having a concussion. However, there are higher risk sports and lower risk sports. Mm -hmm. The higher risk sports are more of the high contact collision sports, such as football, rugby, um, ice hockey, and wrestling. Uh, we see a fair amount of concussions from soccer and lacrosse as well. In fact, soccer is thought to be the highest risk of concussion for our female athletes. Um, even sports that are considered lower risk, like softball or baseball, certain positions within those are higher risk, such as the catcher position where it's not uncommon that they have a collision at home plate. Um, so any sport could be at risk for concussion, but there are some that are higher risk. You mentioned soccer. I'm not a big soccer fan, but I did watch the last half of the uh, women's final, the World Cup. And just in the time I was watching it, I saw two head-on-head -head collisions, and I was surprised that they don't wear head protective gear in soccer. Is that uh, being discussed? So there's a lot of uh, new technology out there these days in regard to protective equipment. Um, however, there's no protective equipment that is known to prevent a concussion from happening. In fact, some people that wear the purported protective equipment feel more protective and alter their level of aggressiveness because they feel more protective and then they actually put themselves at higher risk of having an injury. Hmm. So you, you brought up the issue of helmets. Um, are they actually effective in preventing concussions? I'd say football. Yeah, so helmets, you know, there's a lot of, again, new helmets out there. There's some new helmets that are supposed to absorb forces. 
but there, we don't know if that's going to reduce the incidence of concussions. Helmets are mainly to protect from major skull injuries and mm -hmm. major intracranial bleeding uh, and intracranial injury, but uh, we don't think that they prevent a concussion from happening. So you still really have that rapid deceleration that even a helmet is not going to prevent. Yep, just those forces that get transmitted right. to the brain can cause a concussion. Mm. Well, let's say a athlete um, is suspected of having had a concussion. How are they evaluated on the sidelines? What do you look for? So I think the first and most important thing is to see if they have any what we would call red flag symptoms, which would indicate emergent referral to the emergency room for evaluation, including a head CT. So those would be things like prolonged loss of consciousness, declining mental status, severe and worsening headache, repetitive vomiting, and any concern for cervical spine injury or focal neurologic deficit. So if there's any red flag symptoms, we would want them um, to get to the emergency department um, for, for imaging. Um, in the absence of those red flag type symptoms, the athlete can be evaluated on the sidelines, um, ideally by a trained medical professional like an athletic trainer or um, a provider covering the game. Um, we put them through a neurologic examination. If it's pretty clear they had a concussion, we may not put them through additional uh, concussion testing. Um, if they have a concussion, they're just not allowed to return to play that day or until they're cleared by a medical provider. If it's really unclear, then we may put them through additional testing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a sport concussion assessment tool called the SCAT-5, which is validated for sideline use. Uh, the SCAT-5 includes a symptom checklist, so it's good just to go through symptoms, see if they have any, any unusual symptoms that could be associated with concussion. There's a cognitive screen on the SCAT-5 and balance test as well. Ideally, we can compare their performance uh, on the sideline test to a pre-injury baseline <laughs> test to see if they've had any decrement in their performance. And if they had, that's indicative of, a, of likely a concussion. We also have an eye tracking test that we can do uh, rapidly on the sideline called the King Devic, uh, which also is most helpful if we have a baseline to compare. But if it looks like they're performing well on all these tests, they're not having symptoms, we of course continue to monitor them to see if symptoms are going to evolve. And then we can put them through an exertional test on the sidelines, have them do some push-ups, um, some jumping jacks, some sprinting back and forth and see if they tolerate that okay. And if everything's really looking okay, they might be allowed to return to play. But we often say if there's any doubt, sit them out. Okay. You mentioned head imaging. What, in the immediate head trauma time, what are you most concerned about that you're looking at the head internally? So those red flag symptoms I mentioned before, um, we're basically worried if there's a, a, a bleed in the brain. Okay. Um, and the head CT is the uh, imaging of choice for that. So let's say a athlete uh, came out of the game and was felt to have had a concussion. What's the protocol after that? How do you determine when they can play again? So the protocol, you know, typically we will give them a lot of education. So it's important to educate the athlete and their caregiver about concussion and expected recovery time. Uh, we will make sure they have adequate follow-up with uh, either our athletic trainers or the providers in the clinic. Uh, we you know, no longer do we recommend that they just rest in a dark room and don't do anything until they feel better. That's actually found to be detrimental to their recovery. The first day or maybe two days, it's good for them to rest. 
But after that, we like to encourage them to try to gradually reintroduce some of their normal daily activities, try to uh, gradually return to school activities. Uh, that may require starting with a half day of school, a partial day of school, or using accommodations at school. Uh, we may start them in a low um, risk, low level of physical activity before they fully recover from their symptoms as well. Uh, that being said, you should only do that with the, the guidance of a medical provider. Um, and we follow them. You know, We do their symptom checklist, make sure that their symptoms are improving. Um, in regard to um, giving them clearance to return to play again, I like for them to um, ideally be asymptomatic. I like for them to tell me that they feel 100% back to their normal self. I like for them to be tolerating cognitive activity, for example, at school, tolerating full-time school cognitive activity without any increased symptoms and not requiring any accommodations. I like for them to be tolerating that low-risk physical activity, non-contact physical activity without any increased symptoms. And then we can put them through all of our concussion tests again, so the, the cognitive test from the SCAT-5, um, the balance testing, the eye tracking tests, and we also have some computerized neuropsychologic testing that we can put them through that looks at different domains such as learning and memory, processing speed, those sorts of things. Again, most helpful if we have a pre-injury baseline to compare to. But if they perform well on those and they're feeling back to their normal self, we have a gradual return to play protocol that they follow. Um, it's one step per day, and if they tolerate it well, they can get back to play. Do you care for athletes and other active patients? Engage with sports medicine experts November 8th and 9th, 2019 at the Mayo Clinic Symposium on Sports Medicine. Participate in cutting-edge diagnostic and treatment strategies through live demonstrations and expert case presentations. To learn more, visit ce.mayo.edu slash sportsmedicine2019. I'm sure there's a great deal of variability from one person to another, but what's a typical amount of time following a concussion that a, uh, an athlete would not be able to play? So the typical recovery for concussion is one to four weeks. It may be a little bit longer in our younger athletes. Um, there's some evidence out there that female athletes might take a little longer as well. Um, if they have any comorbid diagnoses like a history of migraine headaches or depression, those are things that might uh, make us feel that they might take a little longer. But usually people are recovering in one to four weeks. The return to play protocol takes about a week or so. Okay. Now, in your profession, are you one of the individuals who would be telling these uh, athletes when they can go back? Absolutely. So do you, I can just imagine uh, if you've got some exceptional athlete, or let's say the team is doing quite well and in a position to make a playoff, uh, are you under pressure to uh, get these uh, athletes back sooner? I think it'd be wrong if I said that, that we never felt any pressure, you know, to return athletes from the athlete themselves, from their parents, from their coaches. But um, I think that's uh, why it's helpful to understand the pathophysiology of concussion and why it's so important to not return someone to play before they're fully recovered. The, uh, if we do, they're going to be at risk for much higher risk for another injury. Uh, the rep the uh, repeat injury may be a lot more severe um, and more prolonged in regard to recovery than the initial one as well. Mm -hmm. So I think it's um, good to understand the, the reason that we uh, have this protocol in place. Sure. 
Is there any difference between uh, high school sports, college sports, professional? There isn't. I think you know. There's the the um, underlying recommendations are um, true for all of those. And does every team have a sports medicine physician on board? Um, well, of course, some of the youth uh, teams um, are not likely to have an athletic trainer or sure. a physician um, um, involved. Um, we are giving education to um, the athletes themselves, to the parents, and to the referees and umpires, the officials. Um, and hopefully the more people that are educated, you know, they're going to recognize that, you know, if a player is getting up slow or they're staggering or they're holding their head after a play, that that player should be evaluated or not allowed to return. Mm -hmm. So hopefully our educational efforts are helping um, those uh, instances where teams don't have a provider there. Yeah. Let's say you have an athlete who uh, has demonstrated symptoms following a concussion and is making a very delayed transition back to normality. Is there anything that you can do to improve this, or does it just take more and more time? Um, so the, uh, the athletes that are taking longer than expected to recover, uh, we often recommend that they get involved in a multidisciplinary program. Um, so here at Mayo Clinic, we have a pediatric and adult traumatic brain injury clinic, and they're multidisciplinary. They're staffed with uh, physicians and neuropsychologists and um, cognitive therapists. Um, so it's a nice multidisciplinary approach that uh, can really help um, the people that are struggling to recover. Um, sometimes we have to, you know, resort to pharmacotherapy in regard to um, treating some of those more persistent, prolonged symptoms. Um, but a multidisciplinary approach is most helpful for those athletes. What, what kind of, you mentioned pharmacotherapy, what kind of medications might be useful? Um, so for the more prolonged, um, the, the athletes with more persistent symptoms, uh, we may prescribe a medication for their headache. Um, and there's just a whole variety of things you can choose from. But um, so treating their headache, um, potential, sometimes we consider a sleep aid. Um, sometimes if they have a comorbid depression problem, we'll treat that with medication. Um, so there's certainly some options out there. Overall, pharmacotherapy, um, there's no current great evidence that we should use it, especially for the, the normal concussions, mm -hmm. but sometimes necessary for the more persistent symptoms. What are the potential long-term complications of concussions? Great question. So I think that's... Um, that's an area that we've learned a lot about, but we have a whole lot more to learn about. Um, I think that the, the main thing we discuss is the future risk of chronic neurodegenerative conditions like chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, so chronic traumatic encephalopathy is marked by behavioral change. Um, it's been thought that repetitive concussions or repetitive subconcussive blows to the head could put someone at risk for developing chronic traumatic encephalopathy later in their life. But we really haven't established a cause and effect. Um, there's the CTE is a postmortem diagnosis, which means that we can only diagnose it after they've uh, passed away and we do autopsy and, and pathologically diagnose it. There's some athletes who didn't have any symptoms that we would associate with a chronic traumatic encephalopathy, but their pathology on autopsy was suggestive of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So I think it's, there's a lot to learn about 
how many, you know, who's at risk and how many injuries are required and um, if there's genetic factors, if there's other factors as well that put someone at risk for developing that and someone else not. Is the patient who is at risk for uh, encephalopathy one who's had multiple concussions or can it occur even with relatively few? So I think the, that we think that it's related to the multiple blows over time, but I think that's something we need to learn more about, you know, and I think there's probably some of the other factors that contribute to um, the threshold level of someone developing that in one case and then someone else um, not developing it and, you know, with similar amounts of injuries. Mm-hmm. Well. My wife and I were very fortunate that my kids inherited my lack of grace and uh, coordination and never really excelled in uh, sports. Um, But what's happening with the kids now in contact sports? Are are fewer going into things such as hockey and football? So I I think that we are probably seeing some of that. You know, I think parents these days um, may steer, you know, when their kids are younger, steer them toward lower risk activities. But we just have to remember that uh, the benefits of being in sport and the, the benefits of being in a team sport um, are huge. You know, we know all the benefits associated with that. And if, if, an, if, if a kid really wants to be involved in, in hockey and they're not really interested in other sports, it's, it's worth getting them involved in that sport despite the risks. Yeah. Well, I taught my kids shuffleboard, but then they tripped over the thing that you pushed them <laughs> disc. Um, is there anything that's being done to prevent sports-related concussions? So I think that the biggest area we can make an impact with prevention right now is policy and rules changes. Um, so you may have heard recently um, with um, increasing the age that um, heading is allowed in youth soccer. Uh, we increased the age that body checking was allowed in youth hockey. Um, They've reduced the amount of contact that youth football players do in practice, uh, more saving it for the games, but also at the same time making sure they um, teach appropriate tackling techniques. Uh, So some of these rule and policy changes with youth hockey, uh, there's a fair play where teams uh, get rewarded for playing fair and get penalized for um, penalties that are um, putting someone at risk for having injuries. Uh, so I think a lot of these policy and rules changes are where we can make the biggest impact right mm-hmm. now. Well, I know the NFL has made some policy changes. They've moved the site of the kickoff, so to reduce the number of runbacks and more touchbacks, uh, reducing that, you know, one player going mm-hmm. one direction, the other going right towards them, and a head-on-head injury, it's uh, that you, you right. see less of that. Yeah, exactly. You know, one thing I've often wondered is uh, there's been a lot of effort being spent on concussions in football and baseball and hockey. Nobody says anything about boxing. I mean, mm-hmm. the purpose of boxing is to cause a concussion, really. Correct. And I don't understand why that has never been uh, brought out. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that's boxing was the original, you know, dementia pugilistica right. that they talked about. And um, so it's good that you bring that up. And um, I think that boxing itself is a less popular sport. So mm-hmm. we probably talk about it less. But uh, but you're right. That would certainly be a higher risk, um, higher risk sport. And um, and certainly not one that uh, I would want my uh, children to be involved in. Yeah. Well, finally, one last question. 
Does the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine have a position on sports-related concussions? They do. They do. Actually, it was recently published uh, here in 2019. It's a great reference, um, and uh, a lot of what we talked about today is is uh, discussed in there as well. But uh, great reference for anyone who wants to uh, to look at that and read that. Great. Thank you very much. We've been discussing sports-related concussions with Dr. Kara Prido from the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation here at Mayo in Rochester. Kara, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. I'm ha- I was happy to be here. Join us here weekly at Mayo Clinic Talks. You can access and listen to over 100 different podcasts covering a variety of medical topics pertinent to the primary care provider. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.